You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm talking to Sean Morley. Very interesting character, this one. Uh, relatively new and uh, I'd say relatively. A couple of three, four hours under his belt, technically, I think. But very, very exciting to watch. He's got a real... Uh, He's got a real mission statement, and the thing he's after is pretty unusual. Uh, I will leave that there tantalisingly. This is a thinky one. Um, I think if you enjoy the comedy of people like Simon Munnery uh, and uh, maybe... Who else came up in our conversation? Um, uh, Mark Watson, to a certain extent, but in a, in a sort of an oblique way. Um, I, listen, I can, uh, I can bandy names around uh, all afternoon, or I can simply introduce you to the Infinity Lad. Sean Morley. Oh, we're recording. Yeah, we're starting. Oi, oi, oi. Why don't we start with uh, <laughs> an introduction? You are newer than uh, many comics I've had on the show. You, we, I think you were doing the were you doing like the new act comps in two thousand fifteen. Yes, I was. Um, so I I started doing comedy in university. Um, there was a big festival that was put on in the union by the uh, resident improv troupe. And they invited loads of sketch and improv troops around from all different university societies. And it was like near Freshers' Week for me. I was just entering university and I'd never really thought about comedy. But then I just went to loads of it because it was like sketch. And to me, I had no, in my head, no interest in stand-up comedy whatsoever. I don't think I'd seen any of it that had appealed to me. But I'd grown up a lot watching like... Monty Python and lots of different things Rick Mail did and Vic and Bob. And to me, having some people out in an arena doing weird things uh, appealed to me. And I saw a lot of sketch very quickly over a weekend. Like, I saw almost, like, three separate projects, different footlights people were doing. Uh, Wit Tank, who I haven't heard of in a long time, but they were quite prevalent here a few years ago. Yes, they did lots of... Was that Naz Osmanaloo was yeah. in Wit Tank and Kieran... Kieran Boyd? Is that Let's go with Boyd. I think it is Kieran Boyd. Okay. And a third person who it shames me to admit I don't know the name. Yeah, and there's originally a fourth person and then, like many sketch groups, they sort of whittle down over the years to smaller and smaller groups. But I was really fascinated by that and I saw one group I really liked called the Animals of Butterbridge 
who later on I, I'd meet again later and become good friends with. Um, and they were doing this bizarre thing about, I think a, a ghost was haunting a date or something and the whole auditorium was filled with props. And the thing that I really enjoyed about it was they were in our main auditorium at Sheffield University. 350-seater minimum, mass walkouts. Loads of people despising it. And I got a real thrill from being like, loads of people hate this, and they're still doing it, and they're having a great time. And I'm here having a great time as well. But something about my experience was heightened <laughs> by the litany of people walking through the aisles. What percentage of the audience do you suppose walked, walked out? I think it's the first time in my life I'm going to see like 100 walkouts of a show. And it was it was wonderful. And there were what remained was the hardcore of people who were going to see it through. And and it wasn't one of those ones where like they wanted people to walk out. They were just doing something very very specific and very stupid. And it wasn't for most people who were like me, undergrads who don't know what they like. Um, so yeah, I started off in sketch university sketch comedy. It's where I cut my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me just the uh, the inverted commas with which you said cut my teeth reminds me of um, a, an element of you, one of the sort of peripheral elements of your output is your blurbs you do very good blurbs oh, thank you I find blurbs really tough uh, well they are uh, yours are um, I've really enjoyed is this your second hour or your third hour uh, technically it's my fourth hour like thing okay yeah, I like so in a way, 2015 is when I is like the canon start of when I became good at what I do, <laughs> and then there's 2014 the and before. <laughs> it's just a primordial Sean Morley who exists for the sake of a complete record, but as far as I'm concerned, was just a different child who inhabited my body. Um, yeah, so I was doing I was doing sketch comedy, university sketch comedy. And I think it went all right, as as far as a university sketch comedy troupe can can go. It went all right, considering half our numbers were made up with people who were doing me a favour by being in the troupe and acting out all the sketches and had no real um, ambitions within this field. Um, And then eventually I turned to stand-up quite a lot out of just sheer practicality. Like, I don't have to travel with four other people. Just train tickets alone is a good advertisement for being a stand-up. But I was very bad, that's the problem. I was very bad at it. What were you bad at? Uh, I, th- I think in hindsight, a lot of what was holding me back was just a lot of like baggage of my own personality <laughs> that I had to <laughs> eventually let go of. Um, it was only through doing sketch... Because we did, uh, our troupe um, did a very, very short run at the Fringe in 2011, I think. Space UK, did a week. It was nice. What was the troupe called? Come on. It was called Fuddlepuck. It was called Fuddlepuck. And and it was only after we'd, like, printed stuff and registered a domain, someone was like, someone's going to think that's an intentional spoonerism. I thought, no one would think that, because if you do think that, you'd have to have a very low estimation of us that we think fucking a puddle is funny. 
but people did, yeah. And then I met Wit Tank, and they're like, oh, what was it? <laughs> they, they said to me, uh, I was flying near them, and one, one of them went, ah, a fellow disciple of uh, Dr. Spooner. <laughs> I thought, oh, no. I think we were trying to make like an amalgamated word like around befuddlement and being puckish and silliness. And it really only occurred to us later it, that people would reverse the nouns and make the word fuck. And, and that wasn't my vibe. And it was really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, what, was the, what was the content of that show? And to what extent was that show kind of you as auteur getting other people to do your bidding? And it, to what extent was it a collaborative sort of process? Um, I think I started off kind of very control freaky and very auteur-y. And then I met someone else in my second year of university who had the same ambitions I did to, like, do comedy seriously. And then uh, he signed up. And then we discovered that <laughs> having two ambitious figureheads that really wanted to be the only figurehead actually was <laughs> signed the death warrant for the for the troop. Um And that was kind of it for me and sketch comedy because I graduated by the time that was kind of going its own way. And it's kind of hard, like, asking around university lectures who wants to join, like, a ragtag performance group. You know, asking around your new part-time job. (laughs) (laughs) Not the same vibe. (laughs) Can't really ask, like, the people you work with if they want to do that. Um... And and what is it? What is the as an ambitious figurehead? What is it that you had an ambition to create at that stage? I think that's where it all went wrong. I think I, I came with. I think when you first write sketches, and it's probably true for stand up as well. But I remember feeling it most acutely with sketches because it was my first foray. Writing your first show or writing your first set of drafts came really easily. Because I'd seen so much, it's almost like I had years of ingesting things and being like, oh, here would be my version on that. Mm-hmm. And the moment you want to go past that first show and go, cool, and now I've got like a small body of work and what's next for me? How do you improve upon... I think it's easy to sit and see things in the world and go, how do I improve upon that? Yeah. It's very hard to look at yourself and go, how do I improve upon that? How do I improve upon me? Um, and I ended up going off in very... Um, I think I've always had um, an impulse to go, well, why not just go completely off at left field, do something that might not work at all, but surely there'll be something to gain from the experience. Okay. Um, which I think was one of the reasons why uh, we have creative differences within the group, because <laughs> I had a real thing of going, here, I've written this, and I go, this doesn't make any sense. It's like incoherent. And I go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the USP of this material. <laughs> Um, it occurs to me I haven't I haven't yet sort of set you up for in terms of the listener right, as to what it is you do yeah. and um, I often talk to people on the show when they have a, a longer or more significant body of work to look mm. back towards so before we go any further um, I feel I need to sort of publicly state I'll tell you why I've got Sean on the show. Oh, yeah. The show I saw of yours at, uh, at the Mac Festival this mm-hmm. year, which was called... It's this show, isn't it, that you're doing at the moment yeah. at The Fringe? And it's called... I, is it I Apologise or is it the... I Apologise for my recent behaviour. I loved the shit out of that show. <laughs> Thank you. I really felt like I was watching someone who had 
a clear goal, mm-hmm. a clear sense of their own means to achieve that goal and um and the specifically there's a section in it where you do your mood i don't know the name of the bit i've since seen it on youtube as uh, sean morley's yeah. world famous <laughs> mood spectrum the, routine the mood spectrum routine which has sort of under a thousand views which i had not the evidence of that um i just loved that routine and i loved what you did with us which felt like a sort of a a very flexible and very free improvisational game that you were sort of leading us on. I didn't feel you were working to a script. I may be wrong about that. Um, but you were, you, you're starting this show, or you did then, sitting in the audience applauding and getting everyone to applaud with you and really playing from the off with that dynamic of what is this? What are we watching? What are we participating in? Yeah. And I, I found it so entertaining and so a really thrilling experience. Um, I've since listened to uh, one of your a clip online of you at a, at a BBC New Talent yeah. competition, I think, in which, again, it's clear you can... I felt I could see the bones of the same sort of thing mm-hmm. that you do, which is to... Uh, I, I suppose the nearest thing for people... Um, uh, listening unfamiliar with it I mean who could just if they could be bothered just pause it and listen to it the the only other thing it, that I've seen remotely like is kind of Mark Watson when he was doing competitions years ago had a sort of a describing what's going on in the room mm-hmm. feel to it or, or you know we know Stuart Lee likes to sort of talk, yeah. talk about the sort of point of the audience but it's very distinct from both of those things so can you just give us a bit we'll go back into the kind of the the genesis of yeah, it sure. but what do you <laughs> what do you think it is that you do Oh, um, feel free to edit out a long pause while I think about how to answer that. Um, what do I do? I think I want to... I think I'm trying to do two things at once at the moment that is um, feels almost contradictory but I'm going to keep approaching it where I'm trying to have what feels like a very fluid, reactive conversation with the audience where I do things or like set them a scene or a proposition and they respond to it, which in turn informs my resulting behaviour. On That's what I want to do on one hand. And on the other hand, I want to be able to take people on... give people an experience that still feels like it has like an arc or a flow from beginning to end that still feels like it's not just a succession of random things happening and so those those don't sound like they go together because if the audience can respond in any way I want and then I'm suddenly thrown off onto this off course how would I ever have a show that at the end can wrap itself up and I think this year I have managed to do that. I think by the end of the show I'm doing, everything I do is in response to the audience. But I always get the same ending and it feels like it completes the experience we've had. Good. <laughs> Why? Why do I want to do that? Why do you want to do that? Um, well, what don't you want to do? That might be an easier way to kind of get... What, what sorts of things don't you want to do? Um... 
I don't want to jump ahead of the gun, and we'll come back to this later. A lot of what I do got informed by when I stumbled upon something that became The Glang Show. And that will make more sense later, dear listener. Um, but what I got into my head was... You know when you're at a comedy show and someone drops a glass or something happens and a comedian just responds to it? Yeah. There's a frisson of energy to that that sometimes is not present within the scripted material. Yes. You see someone who's sort of behind the veil of a monologue step forward and be in the room for a moment. And I always love those moments. And I think what I'm drawn to a lot is like real genuine error. When I'm seeing a performance and I see the cracks in it and I see that all it would take is for just something to go wrong or a ceiling tile to fall off and this is all so fragile. Um, I found that so funny. And I became really interested in trying to make my performances more about that. And when you're like really early on, it's really easy to do that because you're playing in these really stupid rooms. You're playing in a lot of rooms that aren't really very suitable. And having people come out and just try and like pretend that they're in a theatre or a black box studio seems so silly to me when I'm like, we're in the back room of a pub and there's this here and this doesn't work. <laughs> And I just found all that so funny and what a missed opportunity not to talk about how like stupid it is we're all sat in this stupid room. Um, and I think when you drill down, I think that I've got a belief that comedy needs to make... Live comedy should make a virtue of the fact that it's live. I think that um, people have moved away from it because everyone's got... I think a lot of canny people have a long-term multimedia strategy in mind. And so they're thinking, well, this monologue has to be able to work at someone through a screen. Mm-hmm. So why would I be referencing this small detail of this stage mm. or this thing here? It has to be something that could be transplanted maybe one day into radio. Um, but then I think, well, then you're... We're fighting the good fight against screens in a way. We should make a virtue of the fact that me and you, we're in the same space. The things that can happen here are bespoke for this night to night it doesn't have to be that you just do a whole improv show but that's why like comedy courses teach those little tricks to to fake that that's what you're doing Mm. oh where are you from oh i'm from ireland oh i've got a story about ireland it makes you think oh this is connection to the room Mm. but you know people that do that often they just wait until they find someone from ireland they're really like they're on the they're on tracks from from go um, and I love when something feels like it's not on tracks that it could go anywhere and, and the show could be destroyed in a moment So this is Sean you can tell how excited I am to be talking to this fantastic and very engaging brain it's really exciting to see someone and, and, and just know in the first two minutes of sitting in their show ooh a different thing. You're not, not just different, but different to all the other different things that have gone before. And you can very quickly start grouping stuff like Sean's um, into that kind of weird comedy where you, you're sort of outside of the, the parameters of what the thing is. If you see what I mean, it's very difficult to explain it. As Sean himself says, he's after a, a fluid conversation with the audience and a structured experience, and he's drawn to error and fragility. Now, that's not normally the mission statement of most comics out there, um, but uh, it's definitely something that creates a really beautiful 
I, I almost want to use the, use the word filigree, but I don't know what that is. It's, it's definitely a really interesting and palpable and invigorating theatrical experience, which is not to say that there aren't lots of laughs. I really enjoyed his show. Uh, I apologise for my recent behaviour. And he's definitely one of those people. I can't wait to see what he does next. And every new thing he comes out with... I'm there. So more from Sean Molly in just a second. A um, couple of little bits and bobs to do. Um, there, we've launched, <laughs> from from the sublime to the ridiculous, we've launched a secret Santa. This was inspired by, uh, if you remember, the great T-shirt cock-up of 2017, where the extra Thanks Man T-shirts, there were about 30 or 40 orders that, because of my inability to use Excel, all went to the wrong people. And when I carefully spent a week unpicking that and got people to send their T-shirts on to the correct person... Lots of people took it upon themselves, lots of lovely ComCom fans took it upon themselves to include a little gift to pass on the way because it was nearly Christmas. So now we're doing that, but without the mountains of admin for me. If you go to the link that's in the show notes of this episode, I'll be tweeting it and putting it in the Facebook ComCom group as well, um, then you can find, you click on the link and it takes you to a site called elfster.com, which is completely set up in order to to structure this sort of thing. So you simply sign up, you put your real postal address and your real email address so that you can receive the emails and so that that postal address can then be randomly matched up with someone else who will send you a gift and you send a gift to a third party and it all looks after itself in a way that I don't have to and don't risk incurring any sort of awful GDPR situation. So um, click on the link in the show notes, sign up for that. I believe you need to sign up by... Where is it? Um, the last data RSVP is December the 7th. I think if a few people are a bit later than that, if there's enough people, it matches them up with them. So all the, the late, the Johnny-come-latelys and Jenny-come-latelys can, can sort themselves out. Um, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It says on it, there's a couple of things to note. It's not immediately obvious on the landing page. There's a little yellow word that says more. If You've got to press that to get the further instructions. So I'm just going to say them to you now. It, you you have to set a, a cash limit on this. So I've set a £5 upper limit. But the idea is not to spend money, but to pass on a pre-loved piece of comedy ephemera that you already own. So something that you discovered, something that you... I mean, if you have an old bootleg CD of something incredible or, you know, a bit of... Um, like, you remember when Adam Buxton was on the podcast? He brought me that amazing video of, uh, like, a DVD of uh, Adam and Joe's early stuff. And I forget what it's called. Sex Wax or something. I don't remember. But, um... Uh, anything like that, anything special to you or that you think would surprise someone else. So it's not so much about passing on a, uh, a pre-loved Peter Kay DVD that the recipient is likely to have encountered before, but the more special and unique to you, the more of an exciting discovery it was for you, the better. You can anonymize your name if you like. You can ignore the wish list function. I think that's a sort of a, that's the thing the website uses to use Amazon affiliate links. Ignore that um, and ignore the birthday. You don't need to put your birthday in. You just need to commit to doing it. And then I think the seventh we 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 pull the draw, and then a few days later you all get an email that says, "Okay, go for it. Post your thing. Ignore the bit where it says in person. No one turn up in person. That's a hard and fast rule. Do not turn up in person. Just post the thing along. And if you're an international person, you can tick that box uh, that says I'm willing to." ship internationally and then it will match up all of the people who are willing to ship internationally so if someone's in iceland and someone's in canada then they can swap and be paying a similar amount of postage i think it'll be really fun and more importantly there's almost nothing for me to do yes now that's christmas so uh there's that now a couple of other things to mention the tour is still on sale go to comedianscomedian.com slash tour to find out where i'm going to be in the south and southwest of england in spring of next year that's just the first section of that tour there's about 10 dates in there and i think i'm going to do another maybe 15 or 20 in autumn around the rest of the country but if you're in the south or the southwest um 
not even the southeast. Nope, just the south, the southwest, and maybe one kind of almost in the middle of the of Britain. Then um, uh, you can uh, you can get your tickets for those comedianscomedian.com/tour. The show's called End of. I'm fiercely proud of it, and I'm really enjoying doing little bits and bobs of it in clubs at the moment. Let's chat about that in the post amble. I'm in quite a fun place despite the phenomenal tiredness. That's everything I think for now. Um, there's um, changes are coming. Changes are coming. And when the change gets here, you'll know and you'll go, oh, yes, Goldsmith said change was a coming. Um, but uh, I think well, I'll just wait for change to uh, come. And then uh, you can all go, oh, change has a come. And I'll go, yeah, it's a has. So uh, on that mysterious note, I think that's all I need to say. Continue getting in touch with me at ComComPod on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you. And um, for, God, you can see my hapless experiments to try and understand how Instagram works. Ten years too late. Um, and uh, and also in, uh, email me info at comedianscomedian.com. As soon as I finish recording this bit, I'll, I'll remember the other bit I meant to say. But check out Sean Morley, search his stuff down online, but more importantly live. I think it's, it's, it's far more important to see him live than it is to... Actually, having said that, there's some pretty weird stuff he's created online, so also look him up on YouTube. So that's that. Let's get back to Sean, and um, thank you once again uh, to the Place Hotel uh, in York Place in Edinburgh for allowing us some space to record. Um, Sean and I were tucked into the extremely tiny double bedroom at the very top of the building in which Jack Doherty and I had recorded moments earlier, and I was quite relieved that Sean is slightly smaller than Jack. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think one of the one of the weapons in your arsenal is your ability to articulate what's going on in a very um, articulate way. I don't know what the way I don't know what the do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Like you yeah, you yeah. have a real way with words, and it, they're very much at your fingertips when you're describing. I can't remember. There's a bit in the in the, in the BBC thing where you describe them as a the audience were sitting there in a, a combination of sweat. Do you remember this? I don't oh, know if it was yeah. a line or it was improvised. You're sweating and you're crying and your sweat is your sweat is merging with your tears and you look squalid. <laughs> yeah, that's it, squalid. Do you know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. No, was that line improvised or was yeah, that something... Was. Yeah, And would you use that again, given it was such a kind of a big hit? Um, I actually didn't like it. It was... A lot of what I do is, is you know, I'm... I'm I play a character of someone who's got these ambitions and the show's gone away from them. But I really want that character to be quite sympathetic. So whenever I do... Um, I think Squalid's a bit too barbed, and actually I wish I'd toned that down. Squalid's a bit of a harsh way to describe everyone. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I remember a lot of people finding it really ballsy that I've come out to the BBC competition and I haven't really got... a script and I don't I, I step out on the stage not really knowing what I'm going to do mm. 
I know I've got a few key points to hit, but it's really up to my own whims how they and get you, arranged. You, you will be aware that that is not how most people do it. And did you, did you consider there to be pressure on you to conform, or did you think, well, that's ridiculous, why doesn't everyone do it in a more honest, real way? Um, I think the fact that no one else does it adds a lot of value to someone who's going to do it. I think a lot of people, like a lot of people tell me, like, I'm very scared of improvising. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't even consider myself to be an improviser in, in the standard way. I think the, the improv techniques, like improv is a form. It's a form and it's a mode of performing, which I have done nothing to, to study. And when I've tried improv in, it, in, the, in the form that is, uh, you know, classically called improv, I've not, I've struggled with it because often you're creating scenes and you're talking to other characters and that's a skill that I don't necessarily have or haven't really worked on. Which, which aspect of that talk, which aspect of talking to other characters have you, do you mean character work generally, like you need to be a character in order to talk to them? No, I mean like when when I, when I think of improv classically, I think of a troupe and they get a suggestion and they make a scene and it's an improvised sketch mm. of some kind. Um, and I think the skills that go into that are very different from whatever it is I'm doing. Um and I don't know how to distill what it is I do. I think, I think I'm a bit lucky because I just, I come up with a, I come up with an idea that I'm playing this very flawed character. They want something for there's some environmental reason they're not going to achieve that, and I rely very heavily on my ability to uh, bring out sentences very quickly that sum up a very absurd situation in not a lot of time at all. Yes, yes, I absolutely I yeah. can see that. <laughs> And do you, at what point did you discover that that is what you're doing at the moment? Like, was there a moment when you would, like, in a, in a kind of a, a sort of nascent, sort of finding your voice way, in a finding your voice, in inverted commas, yeah. way, do you, did you feel like, is that a thing you discovered or is that a decision that you made? I discovered Max. I definitely discovered it. Talk to me about that process of discovery, given that what you discovered was something very unusual, I think, yeah. and very sort of fresh and invigorating and exciting to watch. Um, I discovered it in autumn 2014. <laughs> Maybe winter, actually. Maybe it was winter. Um, so I had just done a run at the Fringe, and I'd had a catastrophically bad time with the show I was doing. And a lot of it was that, partially it was that I was on the free fringe and I had bad luck with allocations and so on. Um, and partially it's that I just didn't have the skills to deal with things that are arisen from, you know, sometimes if you've got venues on the free fringe where I think a robust enough comic can always deal with it, but a less lesser one would mm. struggle, and I definitely struggled. Um and I was trying to do something completely different. I was trying to do, like, a clever, smart, political comedy show, talking about a lot of political beliefs and trying to be, uh, you know, just a clever boy on a stage. Um, I think one of the big things in my transformation was, like, really internalising that people don't need to know that I'm a smart boy. <laughs> like, really getting into my core, and it's helped me in my whole across the board I graduated with a degree in philosophy 
And I think that's its own environment that's toxic in its own way. And it takes a long time to really drill into yourself. People don't need to know that you're a smart guy. You don't, you, it genuinely, they don't need to know that. Is that part of the toxicity of a philosophy degree? Mm. Is people showing off their smarts? Yeah, yeah. Well, smarts. I, I've never used that phrase yeah. before. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, showing off their intelligence. Measuring their big brains. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And it's... Um, I think it comes with that, particularly te- that particular territory of the humanities as well. Um, and so in 2014, I was doing that show and I was having a catastrophic time. And I'd also brought upon a whim something that was just for fun called The Glang Show. And I remember like this, this, my show, to me, embodied in that moment everything that I wanted to do. I just wanted to like... I think I wanted to be a Stuart Lear-like. I wanted to be someone that had clear, clever, defined opinions could make, like, strong, tightly written routines around them and would build on that, build on communicating something to people. And I was also doing this other show that wasn't about that at all. And I was finding that the second thing was fulfilling me completely and I found such a joyous escape in the Glang show. And then I went back home to Sheffield... And I was kind of thinking about packing it in. I, I sort of reached the end of what I felt I was doing. And the Glang Show wasn't going to build a future for me. I wasn't, it just wasn't connecting the stand-up. I was having a proper, like, crisis of faith. But it was winter and it was, it was raining and it was dark. And I was going to fulfil the last few gig obligations I had. And it was some... It was one of those gigs where you know it's going to be a bad gig but it's paid and you're going to go and you're going to make the best of your evening to the best of your abilities. But it was a new gig in a pub and they hadn't like properly turned the sports off and it was just in the side of like this locals pub and no one was being quiet for the comedy. People were going just performing their sets into the din. And I had this real moment of being like, I really don't want this to be my last gig talking into the din and I think I'd rather like crash and burn and die in flames and have that be my farewell story to comedy (laughs) than just this pathetic like doing these silly little I'm a young liberal boy with a humanities degree and I've come into Chesterfield to to be ignored (laughs) and so all I had in my head was, I need to be louder than the din then. I need to be louder than the ambient noise in this room. What reason would I have to be loud? Because I need to shout if I'm going to be heard. I need, I need their attention. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. But I need their attention first and foremost. And on my way up, someone, so I say with the venue, took a picture with me. Took a picture of me in a big camera. And without thinking, I went... I have not given you my permission to take that picture. My dad is the mayor of Chesterfield. <laughs> and he could have... And I was trying to talk in, like, I'm a posh boy voice, so that people would be like, oh, his dad could be the mayor. Of <laughs> my dad is the mayor of Chesterfield, and I get it all shut down. And, like, some people are like, who's this, what's this guy on about? And then I went behind the bar, and I didn't let anyone get served. Like, when people would come up, I'd just put my hand on the pump and be like, no. No one here is getting served. 
until I receive an apology. <laughs> and they loved it. They loved being shouted at. I think they just... It was just so stupid and so absurd what I was doing. There was no suggestion that you that it was real? I don't know. Or oh, there was a tension that maybe it was real? Yeah, I can't tell what they thought. A lot of people were laughing, but I think a lot of people might have been laughing at, like, look at this kid thinking he can tell us what to do. Which, so in their heads, like, I'm the real deal. <laughs> but that's still funny. Yeah. And there's some people like, this is just a weird performance, but fair enough. Yeah. I think it didn't matter to people. Um, and, like, by the end of the... I had ten minutes, but by the end of it, like, I'd got this guy up who'd been saying racist things through the night just to sing I'm sorry over and over again through the microphone. And I think maybe it's just if you if you show absolutely no hesitation and you don't blink in any way, people kind of get brought along by the brought along <laughs> whatever you want them to do. And so after that, I booked in some more gigs, and my only plan was, I'll try and shut down the night. And so I just got booked in for things, and I started doing my old material, and I'd look for something that. I would claim was a problem that was so bad the night needs to shut down. And I'd try and turn off the microphone, get the lights raised up, house lights, and I'd try and get as many people to leave the room as possible, saying this night's shut down. And then I did it at all three stands at their Red Raw. Yeah. I tried to shut down all three stands. And then one of the people on um, who was doing the tech that night then started to work um, at the McCunkliffe Comedy Festival. Mm -hmm. So that was an in. So me just... 2014, end of the year, I'm going to quit comedy. And then I have this like gleeful little thing about... I'm just telling people off and telling them to go home. And I was thinking, when's this... There's got to be a limit to how far I can go with that. I was picking people up and taking them out of the venue. <laughs> like, I was dragging people's chairs just out of the space or just picking men up and placing them outside and coming back in. Just, I just wanted to know where the limit was. Yeah. I haven't found... I'd never found it. <laughs> there was never a point where I thought, that's as far as you can go. Okay. The further I went, the more people were like, wow. <laughs> okay. Um, and then 2015, I, I got onto the BBC New Comedy Awards, and I tried to shut it down. I can't remember what I came up with, but for some reason I thought it was, something was wrong and we should all go home. <laughs> You in the in that in that clip that's online, yeah. Is that that the one you're talking about, or was it like a, a kind of um, a semi final that you tried to get it shut down? Uh, there it... should be two on my, on my YouTube. Yeah, there's my 2015 somewhere in there, and then 2016 is the okay. recent one. Okay, yeah, 2015. It's not as good as the 2016, but I do try to shut it down, which I think is a funny thing to try and do on BBC Radio. And you are, you're speaking with such kind of fluency about, I think in, in one of them, I forget which, you're talking about, you, you come on and complain about where everyone's seated and then make the point that uh, people in the future listening to this are inherently not here and by the purposes of the format, blind. Yeah, or something yeah. along those lines. Well, I realised, like, it requires such a different set of things to do when the audience is, like, over 120 or so. I think that's such a different dynamic for what I try to do because I can't have a conversation with an individual beyond that because they won't be heard. They're not mic'd up, so they won't, the audience won't hear what they're saying. 
so I normally go to like treating people like sections that are behaving in different ways. Um, and that's what I was doing that night because like that was the Manchester comedy store and it's kind of divided into thirds. But yeah, I did realise unless they're putting a real strong pan in the edit, there's going to be lost on the actual, <laughs> on the actual majority of the audience tuning in. Are you career-minded in, in, in any way, in a way that's different to the, the people that you were talking about before, comedians who have more of a, a desire to make sure that this stuff can work in these different formats? Um, I think I've had, like, in the last couple of years, I've suddenly realised, oh, like, I've actually received a modicum of success now. And, like... I'm not a big deal, but I'm suddenly not nothing at all. Yeah. And with that, I think I've suddenly felt a responsibility to myself to be like, oh, what do I do with it? Where do I go? And I think I'm starting to suspect I've got this aura of like, oh, I'm the new weird comedian that's doing weird stuff. And and I've had some kind of experiences where I've done quite big clubs, tryout spots, and I've done well. Like I've done, I haven't had a bad show or anything, but I still feel like I'm treated with some suspicion because of the manner in which I perform my comedy. I think um, I've gone out and it's I've had a good show, but I don't know, just because it seems so weird. But I don't think what I do is inaccessible. I think what I do really just cuts to the core of some quite common comedy concepts. I'm just a, a fallible person getting it wrong. Um, I'm not trying to be obtuse or oblique or I'm not trying to be purposefully underground or I think there's a lot of... Um, I think there's a there's a tendency if you are told you're doing something weird or that you self-define as someone that's doing something really weird of being almost like a prickly, self-identified alternative comedian who makes it part of their mystique that they're like, oh, this won't be for you, pal. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I've done, like, little working-class pubs and I've done, like, big middle-class theatre shows now. And I don't think that it necessarily works in one more than the other because there isn't anything... Um, it's not supposed to be like a thinky performance, really. It's supposed to be kind of... Um, it's supposed to affect you viscerally, this guy <laughs> flailing around, not knowing how to do it. And like I'm doing the, the show every day, and uh, I apologise for my recent behaviour. And I think the behind-the-scenes mechanisms of the show are quite clever, and there's a lot going on, there's a, lot, there's a rich subtext to it. But the blow-by-blow blow of the show no one should get left behind because there's nothing in there that you can't understand. If you think of the other very successful absurdists, mm-hmm. more recently than Monty Python, say Vic and Bob yeah. and The Mighty Boosh, which is mm-hmm. the two most obvious examples, they have a quality to their absurdism, very different flavours of it, obviously, but there is a quality to it whereby it can take everyone with them, almost like, mm-hmm. like Harry Hill can perform yeah. to... Like Milton Jones can have children in the audience. Like Vic and Bob, you sort of think there is a sort of a childlike or childish mm. quality to what they were doing on Shooting Stars or The Smell mm. of Reason Mortimer, whereby it, there was such a kind of a knowing 
this is insanity mm-hmm. to the audience. Like, even though they existed within their own world, yeah. when they, you know, the latest challenges to whatever it is, fly in on wires and pick up crisps off a thing, you know. Um, I wonder whether you are pitching as a kind of thinking man's, a thinking <laughs> person's absurdism. Right. Not that I'm accusing you of pitching anything, which doesn't seem like a good fit with where, where you're coming from. But I wonder whether, because you are going for a sort of an... And if not intellectual, at least intelligent absurdism, like a visceral absurd, an adult absurdism. Adult absurdism. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It sounds pornographic. It does. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, is that is that because of the vocabulary I use that you, partly you're saying that it's intellectual? Well, it's partly the vocabulary you use and partly the territory that you operate in which you operate is okay. the territory of. Sadness or loneliness or mood or <laughs> yeah, sure. not even sad, not negatively things, but in your in your mood yeah. in your mood spectrum, the world yeah. famous mood spectrum routine. Um, without wanting to give anything away, you know, yeah. you are talking. They're they're adult, they're grown up concepts about mood yeah. and uh, kind of they're somewhere on an emotional spectrum, you know, which isn't yeah. something that has a kind of immediately accessible feel to it. Which isn't to say, I'm not saying it wouldn't work in certain types of clubs, but I wonder about whether whether you can see it catching to a very wide audience. I think the way I portray it changes. I think the concept is really simple. I'm getting people to chart their position on a happy to sad scale. Yes. And where I perform it, I basically just change the language around it. So if I'm performing at an arts festival, you know, I'll talk about ideation and anxiety and and mental health and I'll say those things in those terms. But if I think I'm talking to a broader audience, I'll just remove the terminological specificity of the words I choose to use. I'll just talk about in terms of happy, sadness, mood. Happy, sadness, mood. We all understand happy, sadness, mood. (laughs) It's just being happy or sad. I, like, I'm never trying to do anything that I think is... I'm never trying to do something which I think is beyond the understanding of any given person. But I play up this kind of... I play up my language a lot, depending on who I think the audience are. In order to... Um, I think the more authority I can give myself, the more... It's the, the better it is when I'm destroyed. It's better to destroy a tyrant than your friend. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Sean Morley merch. <laughs> Opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Baseball cap logo. Um, yeah, like I want to play this confusing character who... Because to begin with, I think, the character I played was like much less likeable and much more obviously frustrated. And now I think it's far more ter- like it's more interesting territory for me for him to be actually very sympathetic and have been very reasonable. And he, you can see he's done his best, but despite all of that, it's all gone wrong. Because we've all seen a lot of characters that are like really blustering, and then you kind of are satisfied. Alan Partridge is satisfied when this actually quite not kind man mm. is given his comeuppance. But I think there's a lot more uh, emotional grey area when you're like. Sean really did try it. Yeah, absolutely. Best that it all got away from him. Absolutely, it's very, it's very rich. Yeah. It's very, 
it's very rich. It's making me smile now to yeah. recall that in in the in the show as you describe it. That it it is it's a it is not a one note character. Yeah, it's like a seven note character. Yeah. You know what I mean, it feel it feels rich, and I suppose that comes back to whether you think it, there is a mass market for it. Given it, I, I feel like stuff that is as clever as the stuff you do, stuff that is as rich as the stuff you do. Mm-hmm doesn't necessarily lend itself to selling out a huge venue, which I'm, I'm not suggesting that like, you, you haven't said that's what you want. And I'm not saying, yeah. no, you're, you know, a lot of doubts in my mind about it. <laughs> it's good to learn. Yeah. No one's going to go for yeah, it. Mate. Well. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all, but I'm just, I'm interested in given your apparent rejection of the usual way of doing stand up yeah. comedy. And now that we are in an era of stand-up comedy whereby people start with millionaire dollar signs in their yeah. eyes, you know, what what would what would constitute success to you? Um, like, and, and I just want to make a point. Like, I'm not the whole thing about like the way I perform being in reaction to things I've seen or that I think. I personally don't enjoy as much about comedy. I'm not like a grumbling contrarian or anything. I'm not like I'm not mudslinging. <laughs> um, and also, um, you've raised some really good points, and actually, it's given me a lot to think about, <laughs> about what I'm doing. In my head, it was just I want to remove any barriers to entry. You know. Anything where I think, oh, if someone's of this disposition or have this bit background, they won't be able to... They're not attuned to enjoy the show in some way. And I've tried to streamline that as much as possible while keeping trying to keep it as... I want it to be a show where you could just watch it superficially and have a good time. But if you were to choose to mm-hmm. sit and think about the show, mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh, hello, there's actually quite a lot going on under the surface. Sure. I, I think when I saw you at Mac... Yeah, there were definitely people in that audience who were coming out having laughed for an hour mm. and were coming out going, "God, man, isn't it? <laughs> what Demi- a silly boy!" <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And I'm not suggesting yeah. that I am. I have pretensions to have coming out going, mm, "Yes, I understood the." You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You know, I don't know that I I understood it on mm-hmm. a better level. I just felt like I was kind of tickled by different mm-hmm. aspects of it. And I I, 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 I want to state as well that I'm I'm coming at this angle of questioning largely from a place of envy that you don't feel constrained by things which I sometimes feel constrained right. by. You're projecting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this whole fucking yeah, podcast right. is a project. Do you know what? In the last year or so, and again, like, I'm not a big deal by any means, but, you know, when you're starting doing comedy, you never think you'll leave the open mic circuit. You know, to leave that would be, wow. And I'm trying to give myself a bit of time to just... You know, I've listened to this podcast plenty and I know how neurotic this uh, vocation makes you. And I'm trying to make a point of um, just being happy and grateful for where I've got to. Because what I've got to is actually, you'd asked me a few years ago, I'd have just been satisfied to be here. And I'd love to attune myself just to be in a position where I can go, this, like where I am quite now. I earn like a chunk of my income from comedy and I live in quite a low rent north of England I actually don't need to be as successful to live a full <laughs> life you just got to live in a deindustrialized area um, and so I do consider myself by my own metrics to be successful I'm doing what I want to do 
And I've done a lot of things which I haven't had to compromise on what I'm doing. I'm doing these very specific things that I'm uh, surprised have gone as well yeah. as they have. I'm having a very good fringe run. Like everything's, I haven't really got much to complain about. On the flip side, I don't want to be complacent. I am pushing for things and I've got other little projects in the works. And I'm, I'm now in the middle of um, a part of living in the north of England. And this was sort of a long-term plan was to sort of hide away, do loads of research and development, make something very unique, and then just start appearing in London. And I think it's an advantage you can have um, living where I was living as opposed to living in London, because in London, everyone's remembering you when you were bad, when you were just starting. Mm -hmm. And they're just watching the slow progress of someone going up. And promoters remember you from like a few years ago when you weren't as good, and that can hinder you. Mm -hmm. But to just start appearing in London and people be like, Who's taught you to do that? Where's that come from? Tell me now why you're doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there is kind of like, I think there is like lots of divides. I think, I think if you go north of the, north of the Watford Gap, there's just this thing called mucking around. But if you start doing it too southern, people are like, oh, have you studied in Paris? Have you, (laughs) how many thousands of pounds did you spent learn how to muck around um and so that was sort of the plan and is the plan is that like now i'm here and i kind of want to get some important scary people to stoop down and take a look at what i'm up to (laughs) what's this little boy up to here he's being very silly um haven't got much traction on that yet (laughs) (laughs) okay that's the plan how 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 hard are you pushing? How strategically are you pushing? Well, here's the, here's the negative. So I had this thing where I just wanted to work on something, work on something, and polish it up, and appear. And, you know, for a long time, I didn't think that was going to happen. I did, like, I was just turning over rubbish. And then suddenly I've, I've got an act, and I think it's very good, it's very strong, I'm doing something very particular and original. And I'm going down south, and I'm learning about the industry but I'm so woefully naive. I don't know anything about it. If you start up in London through osmosis, you learn about how the cogs of these things work. And then I'm coming down and be like, I've had to ask in the last year, I ask people like, what does an agent do? Yeah, sure, man. (laughs) What do they do? What is it? And how do I get one? (laughs) I I started in London and a lot of that stuff was not apparent to me. I remember coming up in, in 2008 to Edinburgh doing a sketch show with Richard Sandling called Kiosk of Champions mm-hmm. and we thought it was hilarious and it was pretty good there were some very good bits Richard's very talented and uh, there was a, we had a fun dynamic and then um, we you know, nothing happened no one was interested no one answered our, I don't know if we made many phone calls or if we sent many emails but I remember thinking at the time Oh, you can't just... Like, I thought you could just come up here and be yourself. Be, mm-hmm. You can come up here. We are currently at the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. Um, that you could you could appear and do yeah. your thing and people would start to notice. And then the more festivals I went to, I sort of went, oh, no, you've got to do it one year. Then mm. you've got to do it the second year so people know you're serious. Yeah. Th- then you've really got to do the next three, four, five years so that they know that you're not just some wanker mm-hmm. who just turned up. Do you know what I mean? And it really takes time to mm-hmm. bed in at the thing you're doing. We're, I'm still in that process myself. I'm doing my eighth hour of stand-up yeah. comedy and I am by no means someone who everyone's like, oh, classic Goldsmith. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think one of the big, like, 
I think a real common naive assumption, because loads of people I know fell for the same thing, of, you know, you rock up, you, you do something important, and you smash it, and then you go home and you're like, just going to wait for the phone to ring. Yeah, definitely. And then you learn, no, 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 capitalise on any success and send emails and just remind people that you exist. And just ask for things. Like, it took me years to learn to just contact people that I wanted to have, a like, some kind of professional relationship with and just say, hello. That's all it took. Um, and I'm in the midst of getting over my anxieties about doing that. Yeah. You teach do you not do you do workshops in the sort of thing that you do yes i do and i was supposed to do more of them and i struggled i was going to build like do like four or five dates around the country somewhere but then i really struggled to get one in london i didn't i didn't think there was a point <laughs> if i couldn't do like london where i know i'd uh be able to get a good one um i have run a less than five so far but they've always sold out and the reason I did it was because um, for a long time, living in Sheffield, I've got like half a foot in like the arts world, like the traditional funded by things arts world. Um, and so I had a residency at an art gallery for a while as a resident comedian, which was really good, actually. It was really, really Amazing. very fun. Um, we ran something there once called Scab Hour which was, um, it was like a Glang Show spin-off, where the idea was uh, the first part of the show was a focus group, and someone in a suit would come out and ask people what they'd want from their ideal comedy show. And as they wrote, that was written down on a Word document that was projected onto the wall. And um, things could only be removed from the document if they had occurred or had successfully been realised in the room, and no one was allowed to go home until the Word document was empty. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and we did very fun stuff like that and one thing they said was um, they encourage all their artists to do workshops of some kind because they're an art guy so most people are doing visual arts Mm. they're doing pottery and uh, painting and photography and all that and I felt really squeamish about doing a workshop because um, who am I you know who am I to give anything instructive of I definitely can't pe- tell people how to be successful in comedy because I don't know. But I decided, well, what I'll do is there's one thing I uniquely can teach and it's the specific style of thing I do. And I don't think there's a huge lot of us. And I started thinking, well, actually, maybe it would be good if there were more because I really enjoy it and I'd like there to be more people like, trying to do this kind of thing. So I wrote a workshop for it and then advertised it publicly mm-hmm. and then someone asked me to go and do it in Liverpool and then someone asked me to go and do it in Bristol and I've just done it a few times now and I'd, I've redone the whole thing and I'd like to put out a I don't know, a workshop tour I suppose. And what do you call it? What's the, not the workshop but what's the skill that you're... I've dubbed it scriptless stand-up. Got it, that was it. Yeah, I think I've I found it really hard to come up with a name that captured it but I think that one of the key elements is that you don't write with a script. And I think so much stand-up, so many people I see at the fringe with all these notes and whatever skill you are going to learn from here, you can't have all these notes because that's too limiting. You need to think about your stand-up in a way that's not set in stone like that. Mm. So I call it scriptless stand-up. 
I, I, part of me would like to ask you some of the sort of tenets and principles of it, but I don't yeah. want to undermine the workshop that you do. <laughs> you know, a lot of it is quite theory based. I'm just trying to teach people to think about what they're doing in a in a different way, and it's not. And I think a lot of it is about reassuring people that it's not really as risky as it sounds like it is, because you're not just going out into the unknown. In your head, there's a flowchart. If they respond to this, then do this. If they don't respond to that, then do this. And and I don't think, like, I think people look at me as a risky comedian, but I really don't feel like one. I don't tend to have... The, the, the greatest trick of all is if you build failure into the act, the act can't really go wrong. Because if it's someone that's supposed to mess up, the show going badly is the show going well. So there really isn't... a there isn't... You can't fail because fail is success. Thanks, man. <laughs> so that was Sean Morley. There's some extras with Sean. If you'd like to hear them, join the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Just about 10 minutes worth, but we explore a little bit more about the Glang Show and we talk about some secret stuff that we thought would be better um, in the Insiders Club uh, because the Glang Show is, is sort of a... A secretive, mysterious uh, piece of work in which, with which Sean is involved, and um, it just didn't seem right to sort of spaff it out there at all and sundry. Um, so join the Insiders Club for a small recurring donation of however much you think the show is worth at comedianscomedian.com/insiders. You get access to the extras with Sean as well as the extras for all of the shows now that have extras. It's the only place to find them, um, as well as uh, sorry, my the little Boutros is shouting at me in the background, but. Um, He's gone quiet. We're all, we're all good. Um, so, uh, yes, you can get uh, bits and bobs of... It's, it's a whole private podcast, all of the extras and all of the additional uh, uh, projects that we're doing. Comedy Critique. We're doing another one of those any day now. So I'm going to get on that um, this week. And that's where we all uh, group together and offer feedback to someone who is brave and foolhardy enough to send in a clip, an audio clip of their set so that we can all sort of cluster around it and I curate everyone's feedback. Plus, if you uh, if you become an insider, you get to join the workspace, which is a bit like being in an office with everyone and um, we flick sort of office type gossipy emails to each other all day. So um, you can you can join that and support the show and get hold of the extras all in one place. Now, I will re-mention the tour quickly. Comedianscomedian.com slash tour. Find out if I'm going to be near you doing my stand-up show end of. Um, and uh, that is that. I'm going to post Amber at you in a second. I'm obviously extremely tired. I'm going to try and make it n- not too child-slash-tiredness related. I think I might have um, I might have spent that particular bit of pocket money. Um, but that is everything. Find Sean Morley at the internet. He's out there. Just look him up. I can't, you know. I, I just don't... Have you ever seen... Have I come, I've mentioned this before? There's a site called... Uh, would you like me to Google that for you? <laughs> and every time someone goes, where can we find more of this guy's stuff? I just feel like... Say, just put the name in Google and there's all the links. What, that's only what I'm going to do. Why don't you do it? So there's that. Um, I am going to thank the uh, the Place Hotel on York Place. Once again, it's yorkplace-edinburgh.co.uk if you'd like to uh, uh, spend your hard-earned cash there. In a, it's a luxury uh, situation. Very, very nice hotel indeed. I mean, maybe, maybe I'll afford to stay there one day. Who knows? But yes, click on the Secret Santa link, which is in the show notes, uh, the footnotes of this episode, um, or on the... Uh, Twitter place, the Twitter feed, that's called, at ComComPod, or indeed 
in the Facebook group, which just a little shout out to everyone involved in the Facebook group. It's been going great recently. There's been some fantastic stuff in there. Um, There's been some really interesting and respectful conversations about Louis C.K.'s return to stand-up. There's been uh, some chat about whether... Jerry Seinfeld can go fuck himself for charging a £106 a ticket. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm not saying he can. I'm saying there's been chat about whether or not he can. And uh, what else is looking down here? There's some speculation about uh, sort of a Taskmaster All-Stars series. Uh, Some reviews of Robin Ince's book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, which is very, very good. Um, And also thanks to Chad, who uh, he, he put this in the Facebook group. Hi, everyone. I'm Chad and I'm a comedian. I started doing comedy three years ago. I'm 44 now and I feel as though I left it too long to start. Is anyone else in the same boat out there? There's a load of comments on that. Um, and I mean, you can get the tone of the place. This is one of the nicest corners of the internet. Literally no one is saying, give up and go home. Um, and uh, there's a lot of... Uh... Oh, and I tell you what, which is this... There's a little shout out for a Doug Anthony All-Stars documentary, which I can't wait to see. Um, and where is this? There's a particular one that I'm trying to find... Tom says, as a white, thanks for the ad, as a white van driving, working class white male in my 30s, I'm obviously always judged as some kind of backward racist, um, but I got a job as a van man due to an epic social awkwardness, so I don't have to speak to people, and I listen to the same podcast the rest of you listen to, and as a van man who's surrounded by the kind of witless, sexist, racist morons every day at work, I'd like to say it's a pleasure to be here. What a star, and he's been welcomed with very warm, open arms by uh, you bunch of lovely nerds. And then more people saying, get John Finmore on. Yes, I will, I will, I will. I'll get round to it. I'm booking. I'm booking at the moment, right? Right, that'll do me. Get in touch if you like. Stick around for the post-amble. But for now, that concludes the show. Speak to you soon. Oh, you can see there, the speed at which I'm talking there. Let's, uh... Now, look, I, I said I wouldn't make it too kid-related. Let, what was the thing I was going to talk to you about? It was to do with shows. It was to do with how much I'm enjoying not writing a new show. I'm just going to gigs and just having a little, doing a little mime of a Rolodex of the last four or five hours worth of stuff and going, oh, favourite bit there, favourite bit there, let's do that bit, let's do that bit, sew it all together, bang, it's all my faves and we're having a wonderful time. Rather than having that little voice in the back of my head going, go on, write new stuff, write new stuff. At the same time, I'm going completely crazy, not least with tiredness. So it's, uh, it's... I'm in a much more chipper mood than I was when I spoke to you last. But I have to... I'm just going to do a little kind of confessional here. I uh, I cried at a mum. <laughs> Not just any mum. Good friend of ours. And uh, we uh, were both dropping our children off at childcare and I had had a horrendous morning of trying to sort everything out so that my insomniac and breastfeeding wife can... Uh, those are not her only two qualities. <laughs> um, but she'd had a really tough night of it, and the morning's the only time she can sleep, and so I tried to do, right, Boutros, future girl, I'm going to totally take care of this. Nearly got them both out of the house to get to Boutros's childcare, and it all just went tits up in that kind of house of cards, just everything sort of fell over. Suddenly there's urine all over there, there's the, the future girl is in a sort of bare Gruffalo-type soup that's gradually cooking her because Boutros won't get off my phone, and uh, and it was just like a sitcom-esque domino effect of like that's gone wrong that's gone wrong I'm not coping suddenly her whales all seem to be going you're not coping you're not coping and um uh I then dropped the boy off and I came back and on the way back I bumped into a mum friend of ours who was kind of it was one of those things where someone you know if someone says how are you that you're going to burst into tears so I ran away 
And then I, I thought, that's rude. So I stopped and waited until she came out. And she said, how are you? And I burst into tears. And she dealt with it really well. So for anyone else out there struggling, try and look after yourself and try and get some sleep. So much of it's sleep related. I, I, and if anything, let's choose a positive from this. I am... I am reminded of how much better I am mental health wise than I used to be when I have horrible sleepless you know sleep deprivation induced crashes like that one and a couple of others recently because then it puts me right back in oh this is depressed stew this is depressed anxious stew and I I hate being him because I don't have to be him anymore a lot of the time and and it, so the positive is that isn't it nice to be reminded of how what a change I've undergone. Is that is that positive enough? I hope so. I hope so. I'm going to I'm going to try and notice things outside of my family for the next few of these. I keep saying that, but it, 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 I think this first month of just not sleeping and um what a sort of uh kind of cod army themed survival tips for dads book that someone gave you a few years ago it, what it refers to as sympathetic detonation that's when you throw a grenade in the grenade store and they all go off that that's uh, he, he applied that the writer applied that to when one child starts crying just as the other one's got to sleep and they send each other off we just had a night full of that last night but it is starting to straighten out and it's starting to be to feel less mad and i am i have to say starting to get used to being tired is that the best we can hope for? No, obviously, there's also a fabulous family and loving children and, and you know, great stuff like that. I'm great. <laughs> Boutros has started. Anytime anyone says, how are you? He goes, I'm great. So that's nice. Um, the, point, the point of me mentioning all this was that I had one of those little mini revelations where I thought, right, what happens is we're all familiar with the idea that people on social media show their best selves which pop up in your feed over and over again so it's like they're continually boasting about it even if they only mention it once it just comes up in your feed again and again and obviously if you know comedians they are also boasting about it myself included um so there's that effect we're familiar with that effect but i feel like i'm sort of doing a one of those that isn't social media based i think perhaps all parents and maybe all people are just walking around pretending to cope that's got a ring of truth to it doesn't it because when I had my little cry at my mum friend, she was like, oh, God, I was like this yesterday. And I was like, you weren't. You weren't. She's like, no, I absolutely was. So, you know, we're all just pretending. Why don't we just all stop pretending? Can, can a few, this is my point, can a few more of us just walk around in tears? Can we just walk around? Can we just walk around in an absolute fucking state with one shoe off in tears going, oh, God, I'm not doing this? Because I think it would benefit the rest of us. Anyone not, I mean, what? How could we implement that? Like a certain number of days of the year that you're just not allowed to be, to have your shit together. You've got to be visibly in public, like the emperor. Isn't it the emperor had to spend one day a year dressed in rags and living as a beggar and seeing how the other half lived, how the other ninety nine percent lived? Maybe we should do some version of that, whereby anyone that, like the purge, but for people who cope. <laughs> That's a good system. Purge coping. Cope purging? I don't know. Um, uh, what else can I offer you? Nothing. I can offer you nothing and I can hear the uh, the family moving into the room above the cellar in which I'm currently talking to a cardboard box full of foam. So that'll do me for now. Um, I, I promise to you that this week I will notice more things in the outside life that may be of relevance to you that aren't in my position. But I think purge coping ended up universal. All right. Speak to you soon.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.